there, it's Megan, and you're listening to Better Product, the show where we celebrate great products and the people and processes that make them stronger. Some of the most celebrated digital products, think Spotify, Twitter, Facebook, and others, are really what we call platforms. These are spaces that facilitate communication, connection, and some activity that you can make a part of your lifestyle. But while every platform is a digital product, not every product should be a platform. And with platforms as popular as they are, Christian and I have noticed a growing number of companies that think they are the best option. So today we're encouraging you to think differently with help from Jonathan Nee's book, The Platform Delusion. Today, we'll think about how we can apply lessons from platforms to the product that's right for you. All right, listeners, you may not know this, but I write a letter to investors about product each month in my role at Innovate Map. And I don't have an MBA or and I'm not an investor. So my the whole newsletter is kind of like a lot of the things that we try to cover on the Better Product Show, but written more from a business perspective in the way that investors care about. Well, on this particular newsletter, uh, I explored a little bit what, more about what we can learn from uh, as it pertains to platforms. I started thinking about this after reading the book, The Platform Delusion by Jonathan Nee, which I don't know if I highly recommend it to anyone in the early stages of building a product, but I recommend it. But if it's hard, you could probably skip around to parts that are interesting. Maybe that's what I did. I'm not going to say. But what I did like about it is that he wrote about tech, which I know really well, from a business perspective. And so that really helped give me a different perspective on this concept of platform uh, because we hear people wanting to build platforms or we have clients wanting to build platforms. It was just, I hear it all the time. So I thought, why don't you and I, Megan, talk about this? from a deeper product perspective on this show. Yeah, I, I can't tell if that was actually a recommendation for the book, Christian, yeah, or, it was... or a recommendation for maybe a Sparknotes version of the book, but it sounds well, like a pretty decent place to start. So I think I gave it four out of five on Goodreads. So I should probably say I do recommend it, but I'm just saying if you do go get this book and you're reading it and you're like, what the hell is he talking about? This is way over my head. Just know that I also felt that, but eventually it started to click. So his whole premise is a reaction to this idea that people have that the platform is the sort of end-all be-all of creating a successful tech business. It's like what he would call winner-take-all. And so he uses the FANG stocks that I just mentioned, F-A-A-N-G, Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, Google, to sort of illustrate how investors and talk about they've built these platforms based on flywheel effects and networking and, and network effects, things like that. But for each of those companies, he kind of shows how they aren't really doing what people think they do. And that was fine. I wouldn't disagree with that. But I thought what was interesting is like in this delusion he's talking about, he actually surfaces up the qualities of each of these companies that they actually did do well that helped them gain market share, even if, you know, it's a delusion that it's like this, like winner takes all market. And that's, that's what I want to talk about today is like, yes, maybe there's a delusion that platforms are winner take all, but I still think platforms are really beneficial. What I think is missing is people don't quite understand what it takes to, to build those. Yeah. And we see this so often in our work at Innovate Map. I've been in client meetings all day, you know, up until now when we're recording this episode and platforms came up twice most specifically in one positioning workshop that we were doing with a client where 
one of the clients compared it. We were talking about, okay, what do we call this? Do we call it a platform? Do we call it an all-in-one um, end-to-end? What? And she's like, well, definitely not platform because you know the South Park Silicon Valley episode already ruined that. Everybody's calling themselves a platform. Nobody deserves to be. It kind of means everything and nothing right now. And so it's something that at first, I think a lot of SaaS companies in particular were trying to claim, like everybody wanted to be a platform. And now nobody wants to be a platform because it's it's become that um, latest corporate jargon, like synergy or something. So I shouldn't use the word synergy either. No, you should have, that, that should have been again. dropped like five years ago. Yeah, but like the 90s are like fashionables. We saw with the Super Bowl. So I'm just waiting for back. synergy to become cool. Yeah. There's, you're saying it's not, not yet. Yeah, right. it could. Fair enough. Um, so I think the point we're trying to make here is that people assume there's an immediate appeal in building a platform, or at least they have for a very long time. And there can be for sure, because it's one of the most well-recognized digital product types out there. But the truth is you have to recognize that platforms think about product differently and that the way that they're thinking might not be what your product needs. So today we're going to distill some of the biggest lessons that I think we can learn from platforms. And I'm excited to take my own analysis a step further from the newsletter and unpack it with you, Megan, because I think your perspective, and as you just said, you are actively working with clients right now, like literally five minutes before jumping on, on this podcast. Yeah, I'm excited too. But before we get too far, I think it's important that we start by sharing how you and I define platforms. And that way listeners can compare their own understandings or we can even even debate what we mean by platform. So we like to think of platforms as products that facilitate communication, connection, or some activity that you make a part of your lifestyle. That's one definition. We have a couple yes and definitions. We also think that platforms are technology that facilitates some sort of interactivity and at some point monetizes that flow of activity. So they actually monetize the interaction themselves. And finally, another way to define platforms in our mind is specific to SaaS. uh, A platform is a product or technology that enables a user to do multiple different things on their way to accomplishing a single goal all in one place. So for example, so like, Oh, go for it. Oh yeah, go ahead. No, you go. <laughs> I was going to say like with that last definition, would you think something like Salesforce CRM would, would be considered that? Cause it's all around, you know, CRM, but it's aggregating a lot of things together towards that goal. Yeah, exactly. So from that last piece of it, I think Salesforce is a really great example Some other examples based on the other pieces of that definition, social media is considered a platform like Facebook or Instagram because it's a place where people can talk to each other. It's peer-to-peer on a community level. They're facilitating communication and connection in that sense. But streaming services like Spotify then are also platforms because they host a service like listening to music that users come back and visit again and again in their daily lives. And with Spotify Premium, they also monetize part of that interaction. So based on those sort of different definitions or kind of one combined definition, Christian, is that similar to what you read in the book? Yeah, I think so. I, you know, I'm actually thinking back that I don't rec- I actually don't recall him defining it. I honestly might have skipped it because everybody defines it differently. But I think you captured it. But you did get me realizing that I think there's a bunch of different types of platforms. I mean, 
the Fang stocks that he's mentioning are all consumer oriented. And we just talked about Salesforce. Um, there's a lot of platforms like that, like that are very B2B, like Twilio, or I would, I'm curious if you would agree, but I feel like Zoom has become a platform as well because, well, and now I'm just starting to think like Zoom got big during the pandemic, but ultimately all it really did was made it easy for us to have, you know, video meetings. And that to me is a product. Right. But why I say it's become a platform is they haven't really added on to that functionality. They've actually just built up their integrations, their app store. So people are building on it, which to me, they've almost like split. We should get into this later about these decisions that were made where instead of doubling down on the video product, they really just said, we're going to keep this and then add all that. So, but I think you captured, I think if you were looking at it from a business lens, it's probably worth stating that the whole reason people want platforms investors do is because the, the, the margins are so good. Like you can like, what's that old saying? Like it wasn't the gold miners who made all the money. It was the people selling the shovels or whatever. Like it's you're, you're monetizing something on top that you can get to scale a lot easier. You know, so even like with Netflix, the idea would be that if you have great content, you'll get more subscribers, but it doesn't really cost you more money to get those, you know, subscribers, things like that. So yeah, I think it definitely takes, I think you, you covered the platforms and, and for this conversation, we should just maybe note that in the SaaS world versus consumer, I think it's a little bit different. For sure. And I think there's definitely an appeal that draws people to creating platforms, you know, who wouldn't want to be a shovel seller during the gold rush. But because like you described, many of the biggest digital products today, the FANG companies in particular are platforms, but that doesn't mean that you should just go with the herd. Who wouldn't want to be a shovel seller? So really, I think when you're thinking about platforms, it's really easy to confuse yourself, which I think can hurt your growth. I mean, we mentioned Zoom and sort of making that decision on what they're going to be. And it may work, it may not work. But for a lot of people, it is a real identity crisis. You mentioned it at the start with the client talking about what are we trying to do? And I think when you think about a product, I think about products that are, they are not single use case, but they solve something distinct and they should do that well. And then you make money off the product because you are saving that person time or money or frustration. But when you think of platform, you're almost just like, it's almost like that cartoon with like dollar signs in their eyes. Like that's almost like a money play. And I think sometimes people get confused because in the beginning stages, you might get advice like, hey, you should build this platform and look at all these things that are possible. And you're like, whoa, whoa, maybe, maybe slow down and just nail the product first. I mean, even with Zoom, they nailed video conference. There's no doubt they were the best solution. They were the best. <laughs> they were hand, the best solution. Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. Right. They were the, the only solution. Right. And now we see like a whole bunch of new video products that are coming out, but we probably won't get into that. So anyway, to understand this problem, we're going to unpack what the platforms do differently from three different perspectives. So um, and some of this I covered in the newsletter, but we're going to dive deeper. So number one, platforms see brand and product marketing differently because they tend to have a consumer focus and need to generate widespread interest and participation. Uh, that consumer focus, I still think is true in B2B. Uh, the, the point being that they have to show value to whoever they're integrating. So even with Twilio, while you and I are not like end users of Twilio, they are going after other businesses and they act as consumers and they have to market and sell like consumers. Second, second, 
platforms, I think, see their product management strategy in a different light. They recognize unique value and make growth decisions that protect and amplify the value. And last, and this won't be a surprise, you need to invest in quality UX design to succeed as a platform. And I think that is one of the sort of hallmarks of platforms today, because a lot of the technologies exist, have existed, but the products that are coming out are going to have to compete against others in UX is in great experience is a key differentiator. So let's start with point number one, how platforms use brand and product marketing. Why don't you kick us off, Megan? Okay. So first off, brand and product marketing are both things that the big platforms got right. They created incentives to get involved and stories that motivated people to use them. Right. A lot of the platforms that have been massively successful over the last five years created a sense of FOMO. And uh, for me, I get made fun of a lot for this around the office, but I am an Apple Music user. Uh, but I just want it to be known that I have used Spotify. I've used RDO. I've used, I've used so many things. Now I'm just gonna like really date myself, but I've been on streaming for a long time. I don't necessarily use Apple Music because I think it's better than Spotify. I get Spotify is cool and hip and all that and has a Spotify wrapped and everything. But what's really important here is that Spotify created FOMO. Like I think about the fact that I'm not on Spotify because other people are. And I don't think anybody's feeling that way about Apple Music. So what's the key differentiator? What drives people to Spotify? It's the brand. It's the it's the way they message it. It's the way they build, you know, I'm going to use air quotes, features uh, like Spotify wrapped that are nothing more than creative ways to connect with the audience. So all of that stuff is what makes Spotify a superior platform in, in a lot of ways. Um, you align on or you sort of level set that the technology, the content is pretty much all the same. So how do you differentiate? How does Spotify end up IPOing when Apple Music, previously iTunes and all that had been around for 15 plus years? It was all, in my opinion, the product marketing and brand that they used to drive the, the consumer side adoption. One thing I've noticed that these platforms, especially the FANG platforms do really well, is blur that line between features and marketing campaigns. And so one of those is Spotify wrapped, like their users are their best marketers. Everybody's posting their Spotify wrapped on their own Instagrams. So it's a feature for them. And it's interesting to see what you've been listening to. But then by posting it, you are activating a marketing campaign for Spotify. And then similarly, if you think about Apple as a platform, which this book considers them to be, they... All their, all their ads now, all their billboard ads are just a photo taken on an iPhone, blown up huge. And it's not a marketing photo. It's a photo that a user took on their own iPhone. And then they actually used it in a campaign. Yeah, that's. I'm glad you brought that up because the book does talk about Apple as a platform. And it really is because of their most like recent shifts into digital. And um, you know, Apple's been a physical product company from the beginning. I mean, that was always their thing. But, uh, and I think, I don't remember the full story, but I think even when iTunes came out, it was really just used to kind of help sell iPods. I don't think they made any money off the songs at like 99 cents originally. So like they didn't really get into like this version until, I don't know, maybe five or six years ago, like they added iCloud, they've, they've got this Apple One, which rolls their subscriptions together from Apple TV and iCloud and uh, Apple Fitness and video games. I mean, it's all over. 
uh, all over the map. And really over the last few years, what the book talks about is Apple has kind of like shifted to this platform on top of it, which is funny because they still make a killing. I've seen these graphs of like AirPods themselves have made more money than like some of the top tech companies. It's, it's, it's wild, but yeah, they, I, I like that you brought that out because they're almost advertising the use of their own product to drive adoption of a platform, which is where I think they're betting the future of their company goes. Right. The craziest part about that AirPods status that we were just complaining about our AirPods right before we got on this podcast. No, it wasn't working. Yeah, yeah. that they weren't working and getting them replaced. But anyway, the good news is investing in brand from the start, whether you are a platform who might use a little bit differently or not a platform is going to be worthwhile. And if you build a good brand, one that's compelling, one that's distinct, unique in market, you can start attracting the right people right away. And then as you grow your business, brand costs won't noticeably increase. It's kind of like that set it and forget it. The customers that you end up acquiring because your brand resonated with them so well will eventually pay for the brand itself. Yeah, it's almost like we talk about digitizing the whole like a referral process and software. But the way you talk about brand, I don't think people think about enough, which is just the FOMO aspect. Like if you can build a brand that other people want, that is a referral. My question for you before we jump onto the product mark management side is, do you think that like what we're talking about here, this brand, can you apply that to B2B, to, to SaaS, to things that are more technical or complex in nature? Or is it something that you think only works with consumer lifestyle type products? Yeah, absolutely. I think it can be uh, applied to B2B. We've been seeing trends recently where B2B products are having to do more in terms of brand. Consumers are getting so used to all of these consumer-facing brands that look awesome and that are super targeted and are doing a lot more. And so when they go then to, in their jobs, purchase B2B software, because as we say, it's, I mean, the buyer of B2B software is still a consumer. They are going to be looking for brands that are acting a little bit more like B2C. So you're actually reminding me when you're talking about creating a category, Megan, I was thinking about the story in Play Bigger about Salesforce. It was like 99 or 2000, 2001. I can't remember, but they had the whole campaign of no software. But you're right. They did almost leverage that to build their platform because they even had a, I think they even got a, a permits to have a parade, like a no software parade, like in downtown San Francisco. Oh, yeah. They basically used pretty traditional, like, marketing campaign tactics to sort of drive home uh, this this sort of different way of thinking. Okay, so I think we talk about brand and how it can sort of drive adoption of platforms, but platforms also think differently about product management. So I, I'm loath to go here, but I must, because uh, I've got to talk about a product we love to hate, Facebook, Meta. You all know I don't really have many compliments for Meta as far as their ethics or design practices or anything like that, but I do think in, in reading this book, I did develop a pretty good appreciation for you know what Facebook has been doing up until this meta shift. But um, anyway, ignore all the weird meta ads or the Horizon World ads where people don't have any legs and think back to Facebook as this communications platform. So even though they were a platform, uh, they knew it was all about communication. So that is really what drove their acquisitions of WhatsApp and Instagram. It was really adding on to that core value prop of being able to interact with people. So 
uh, you know, WhatsApp was a secure app. So the idea being that they would provide this sort of safe, safer, like sort of private space to DM people. Um, and then Instagram, it was just becoming this sort of like lightning in a bottle, like 13 employees that sold for billions um, where people were sharing photos. These were not things Facebook was doing well, but it really rounded out, you know, their communication. The point being that even though Facebook is a platform, they're still thinking a bit like you would with product, which is like features supporting your like core first principles. It's just, it changes a bit because it's not just about buying products and then folding them in into everything. WhatsApp and Instagram still have their own brands, but it's really just about like shoring up your core thing, your, your core value with some things that sort of complement it. Yeah. And I think this is kind of where product marketing and product management start to blur together, where you have to make sure when you're setting your positioning and setting that North Star, it's based on product vision. And also it's it's like a chicken and an egg. So as you said, Facebook and Meta, their product vision and their North Star has always been communication. And so that's what led them to make the integrations that they did. And so it is kind of a give and take between product marketing, defining your a company's position and market, defining that North Star and product management, defining product vision, and the two of them making sure that they're always communicating it, that they're always on the same page in order to be making those decisions moving forward. The big problem though, like is, is that when you're building a platform and you're like in the process, it's like you, you talk about, you know, you think about focus in what you're trying to do. The problem with the platform is it's like the opposite. You're building something where the potential is infinite. And so it's really hard if you're overseeing product as a part of a platform strategy to have that focus because you're like, I could literally do everything. Like if you're looking at Zoom and you're sitting there and trying to brainstorm what you're going to do, like the it's endless. It's way different than when you're building a product with a targeted you know, user base and, and feature function. Um, and so I think I don't, again, supporting what Facebook did, they, they didn't explode, you know, too far out initially, they grew by sticking really close to that. But I'm curious when you say, cause you talk about this problem with, with B2B SaaS and um, how do you see this happening with the B2B world, Megan, where people are building integrations into their product or APIs or how, how do you, how, what are some problems you see in the B2B space? Yeah. Well, first I'll say, I think you call out something really important, which is even with a North Star, if it is as, as big as communication, you still need to have focus. Like why wouldn't Meta have acquired Duolingo in order to teach people new languages so that they could communicate? You know, like there, there are nuances um, so that you don't run into what we kind of refer to as integration bloat where you're picking up all the, the wrong things. And I think it's something we've definitely seen B2B companies do is they have a North Star, but maybe it's not the right one, or they have a North Star and they just haven't narrowed it enough. And so they start picking up the wrong integrations or they start trying to uh, work in legacy integrations that really should have been dropped years ago. And they're trying to basically just fit a bunch of things like as my grandma would say 10 pounds in a five pound sack um, into the same platform. When we talk about this a lot in product and especially in brand, they really would be more successful if they focused on more of a niche, even at the platform level. There's something to be said for that level of focus, allowing you to narrow in on a 
a very specific target audience and deliver what's best for them rather than delivering what's okay for everyone. So after you've created a great brand and you've kept your focus on strategic product management, the great platforms also show us how great design can be a driving force for new customers. And when I say design, I am talking about UX, but it is like completely connected to brand as well. And you'll see in a minute with some of these examples. So in the newsletter, I looked at this, this the UX practice with things like Uber and Lyft and Airbnb. And these platforms are as big as they are today because they took a process millions of people use all the time, like transportation and hotel bookings, and use design to make their way easier than the traditional way. So Megan, I want to hear what you think about Uber and Lyft because you use that a lot more in New York City. I'm familiar with Airbnb and I actually, instead of contrasting it with hotels, would contrast it with something like HomeAway or VRBO, which I think is actually called Verbo now. I think it's like 50-50, um, the way people pronounce it. I still say well, VRBO. I, they had like an ad. So they had a whole like ad that. that was like, it's Verbo. Yeah, I don't know. So first off, I also want to caveat because I know I'm an Apple Music listener and I'm using VRBO instead of Airbnb. And all I want to say is that I'm a parent and I have kids and VRBO is a lot easier to find kid-friendly houses in Airbnb. That's it. Anyway, and the reason why I don't contrast hotels with that is it's, just, it's a different thing. But when you talk about renting a house, what Airbnb did is they use design to almost make the whole thing aspirational. I mean, they've leveraged experiences completely throughout their design. So yes, the UX, a lot of things are easier to use, but UX only goes so far. Like you, you can't optimize it past a certain degree. So I wouldn't say VRBO is hard to use, but they use UX to always keep the focus on the place, the destination, the what you're going to do. And almost just like the house is just kind of the way you get there rather than the end all be all. So I think that as Airbnb has built out their their platform uh, of, of booking, it can't go ignored that they have built a massive design team that has continued to focus on making that experience compelling. When you think about a platform, you need as many competitive advantages as you can against others if the technology costs are the same. So how they would continue to you know, thwart off com competition from others is through design. Having the technology and bookings and all that, that's one thing, but then to do that plus have an amazing design that's full of like designers who have been working there for years, that's really, really tough. So I want to shift over to Uber and Lyft before we end this section, Megan, and hear what you think about the UX there and what they've done. Yeah. So for Uber and Lyft together as, as ride sharing apps, let's say, I think one feature or process that they have both vastly improved on and made easier is payment. So if you think about the alternative mm. before would have been taxis and it was all cash payments. And we as a society are moving towards less of a cash-based society. And Uber and Lyft obviously recognize that. They make it a piece of cake to pay in the app, even tip in the app. They always prompt you to tip and they give you different options for how much. And now cabs have been even trying to catch up because they installed credit card readers in the cabs you know, years ago. And then recently there's a new app Curve that's popped up. That's actually an app that lets you call a taxi like you'd call a rideshare. And if you're already in a cab that you just flag down on the street, it'll let you pay through the app. So payment's probably the biggest one for me. On top of that, Uber specifically was really smart about their integration between Uber, rideshare, and Uber Eats. They've actually now started giving you prompts in the Uber rideshare app to order food on your way, which I think mm. is crazy smart and also the best thing in the world when you're, let's say, coming back from the airport 
you've got like a 45 minute ride back to your apartment and you can have food waiting there for you when you get there because you call it at whatever so like the like, perfect time on the ride is and they time it for you. So when I, so, okay, now, sorry to take away from this episode, but I have to know this, this is real. So I, when I come to New York, I always, when I fly into to Newark, like I get off the plane and I get the Uber and I have timed it just well enough so that I can grab a sandwich at Starbucks and then get it and, and eat right when the Uber comes. Are you saying that I can like get the Uber and have them bring me food or it's like a part of the drive, like after I get picked up? No, it's it's like it. you and your food end up at your destination at the same time. It's two different drivers. So you get in your oh. Uber and then it'll pop up a notification that says like, looks like you're coming from the airport. Do you want us to meet you at your hotel with food? And then you can actually what? place an Uber Eats order. Okay. And yeah. And then they'll I'm show a up Lyft guy through and through just because of their their branding and that that whole business. But you might have just made me an Uber guy. Uh -huh. I'm gonna. That's literally the best. All right, <laughs> but so you're. I think that and and it's hard to sort of talk about UX design without being visual. So if you if you you know don't trust us, just use the apps. But I think ultimately, I think what you described, Megan, is that the design of of Uber. You're right. Like tipping is really easy. Like it's actually easier then it needs to be. This is just, they've, they've made it easy so they can help treat the drivers better and make it easy on you to do it. But also what you just said too, I think is a great example of how platforms can sort of like use learning from the usage of it to inspire new features. That's step one and two, but does the good design that they have instilled in the product is what gets that feature integrated in a seamless way and keeps it from getting like unwieldy or integration bloat or feature bloat. Yep, exactly. All right. So to recap, platforms are definitely one of the clearest examples of building a successful digital product today, but it's not the only way. Again, we're not dissuading you from doing it, but hopefully dissuading is not a word, but dissuading is and swaying against are, and I combined them. So I'm going to go with it. We're not dissuading you from doing it. You can use that word, but instead try to think about what the platforms got right. And when you think about the big, like the monoliths today, maybe don't compare yourself to what they are today and think about how they sort of got there over the years. And then you can see how you can apply those strategies to your chosen product. So Megan, why don't you help recap the the main points from, from this episode for our listeners? Yep. So to review our strategies for deciding whether or not you need to be a platform, but also if you're going to be a platform, how to do it well. First and foremost is investing in brand up front. So even if you're not serving a wider consumer audience, building a brand that attracts people who want to use your product can create incredible returns. Second, keep an eye on your product management. As you grow and as you add new features, use good product management and collaborate with positioning and product marketing as well to keep the original purpose and vision top of mind. Every new feature should support the original vision. And I'll hop in for the last point, which is don't sacrifice UX design on platforms. Good design is a driver for engagement, for customer attention. Um, and I think good design can help you know, customer acquisition. If you don't believe me, just witness what just happened when Megan described a feature of a product I don't use and how I'm committed to use that. That's what good design can do. It's hard because you may get investors or board members that don't see it because it doesn't have easy metrics to track, but it's just one of these like investments, almost like PR strategy is where you just keep chipping in and it, it builds over time. 
And to prove that that actually works, Christian is not often dissuaded from using his favorite products and platforms. So this is a big deal. I'm hard to dissuade. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, finally, if you haven't heard yet, our Better Product community is now on Slack. So click the link in the description or visit betterproduct.community to join today. Thanks for listening to another episode of Better Products. Thanks for joining us. And if you haven't yet, be sure to join the Better Product community. We've got all sorts of content and resources for you. And if you want more audio, don't forget The Business of Product is our latest show to join the Better Product Network. And you can find that and more at betterproduct.community.